Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, a survey says English language learners may do better at charter schools. Doing worse, one local tech school that is failing to measure up. Plus, we're taking a look at some revealing presidential polling not getting any press attention. Later, the Farmer's Almanac has offered weather forecasts, full moon dates, weather history, and folklore since 1792. We'll speak to one of the editors about tables and tides and what's coming for us this winter. But first, joining me in the studio is Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and an editorial writer for the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. Hi, Marcella. Thank you for having me. And Julio Ricardo Varela, digital media director for NPR's Latino USA and founder of Latino Rebels website. Hello, Julio. Hey, Callie. Well, let's just dive right in with some politics, and let's start with local politics, uh, Marcella, because you've noted that uh, Anthony Petroselli, who represents East Boston and for, has represented, really, East Boston for the last 17 years, is uh, stepping away. Mm-hmm. And that provides a really interesting political opportunity for some Latino political leaders. Yeah. He uh, he announced his resignation last week, and it was a little, actually two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and that was a little surprising because nobody saw it coming. This is a guy who actually started his career with uh, Mayor Tom Menino as um, as an East Boston liaison for him for the for you know for the city. So he then became a state rep for the district of East Boston. It only comprises East Boston, and then seven or eight years ago, he uh, he took a senate the senate seat. That comprises, again, uh, includes East Boston and then other parts of Boston. It includes the North End, actually. It includes uh, East Cambridge, Winthrop, and Revere. <clears throat> and so, of course, we know that all these places have seen in, an incredible demographic change. And and the question, obviously, is where are the Latino candidates and are they going to run? Now, we've seen some, some Latino victories recently in the state, in Chelsea, for example, Talk the, about that before you go on. So the so, so Chelsea, you know, mm-hmm. just to remind um, the audience here, it's the second, um, it's the city with the second uh, largest share of Latino population in the state. Of course, the first one being uh, Lawrence. And so Chelsea, for the longest time, you know, Chelsea has has had its own problems as a city. It was <laughs> in receivership, blah blah blah, but. You know, obviously, the the Latino community was starting to get uh, hold of of the whole city, and but then the city council had zero um, Latino city councilors, even though there had been politicians there that had tried. Long story short, it went from zero to five or six uh, in this last election, and and most of these victories, uh, these councilors were young right. uh, candidates. We saw other victories in Waltham, in places like Haverhill. Again, there are not necessarily. Um, considered by people 
you know, strong Latino neighborhoods, mm-hmm. strong Latino cities. So that was interesting. I thought that that would um, that that would bring some momentum into the state. And so, lo and behold, then you know, Petrocelli announces that he's leaving. And then I was like, this is the great, this is the, a great opening for Latino candidates. So who are they, right? And of course, Boston remains. <clears throat> Um, but Boston still doesn't have any Latino elected official, and there are many reasons for that. But um, but um, again, in East Boston, we've seen a lot of um, community activism recently. As you can remember, uh, the casino mm-hmm. uh, brought up a lot of activism there, and and there were a lot of people there that got involved in the community that are interested in representing the community. So. We may see some candidates. Nobody has declared officially that they're running yet. There's a lot of, you know, political, you know, gamesmanship being played right now. Um, Probably Mayor Walsh is going to have his own candidate. You know, like everyone is expecting who's going to run. There's another candidate of color, actually, a Mm. Nation American, very promising young uh, woman Mm. who actually lives in, in East Boston and she has announced that she is thinking about it, mm. um, which means, you know, that she's probably going to run. But mm. she's waiting for other people to, to, to decide too. And so it's it's going to be a very interesting, a very very interesting race. There is a candidate that is very very compelling, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy Ernani de Araujo, he's been in East Boston. He's been a fixture of East Boston for a long, long time. Uh, son of immigrants. He actually worked in the same um, in the same position that Petrocelli did. He was the East Boston liaison mm. for uh, Mayor Menino when mm. he was mayor. He he was there for three years, and then he occupied different positions. He um, he worked with housing advocates in East Boston, as you know. East Boston right now is going through the same thing that J- right. JP right. you know gentrification is an inc- huge issue. Totally undercover, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is a promising candidate, and so we, you know, we. Ho- I hope that that we see uh, at least one, and 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 again, a qualified candidate, right? Because right, right. again, identity politics. People always assume that because he's Latino, we're but calling he, he for him to, to run. Qualified, yeah. At least from what he wrote. I mean, yeah. it says here Absolutely. what he wrote. It's like Harvard graduate, intern mm-hmm. at the White House. Attorney at Foley Hogue LP. He's from East Boston. Mm-hmm. He his his parents met in Eastie in the seventies. He's been story. a talk mm-hmm. like you want to talk about a new Boston voice mm-hmm. that I mean, on paper, that it just seems like he would, right. he, it oh, would be, it would be it would like he would run, but yeah. you know, um, I'd that's my guest, uh, Julio Ricardo Varela. He's digital media director for NPR's Latino USA and founder of Latino Rebels. And you also heard from Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and an editorial writer for the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. I wanted to put this on the table, and that is Petrocelli is thought to be quite powerful in East Boston. It's mm. not that it, that you're he's leaving a seat per no, se, no. simply. He's, you know, as I understand, when people got ready to run or right. think about it or needed support, they had to come pass by him. What a surprise. I know. Boston <laughs> politics that there's, you know, you no, have to, just, you have to ask you're for talking the blessing. About, you're talking about the Italian ruling class, <laughs> oh, of, you know. You went there. Right. And me being of the half Paisan <laughs> descent. Um, no, it's know. it's it's a real, it, it, and this is what I mean when I say that there's all this backdoor, you know, talks already happening, who's going to be the candidate and everyone and their mother is considering running, you know, the, um, the Revere mayor, because again, this district includes Revere, also mm-hmm. a city mm-hmm. with a quarter. The, the, and the, the quarter. casino. And there's so right. many, like, there's so many, but one of the things play. about the, but, and, and it, you do raise a good point, Marcella and Kelly, about how East Boston is perhaps 
how it's changing now, you know, in the era of Boston gentrification, mm-hmm. this is the next great area. Yeah. You know, when people start going, oh, you're right next to the airport and all that. So oh, there is a, doing that. they're already, yeah. but there's like yeah. the validity of saying this is a place where you might want an established, you know, sort of that Boston establishment, mm-hmm. um, political, mm-hmm. you know, push. It wouldn't surprise me, but obviously, when you have a very, very Latino, yeah, you know, constituency that hasn't had a voice, right? This and could this 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 would be an interesting, yeah, race. it could be major. And, could, and I'll, yeah. I'll leave you with and this. The district thought. is is twenty three percent The district, the yeah, district, including yes. the district, which yes. is which so is pretty high. It's pretty us, high. Yeah. There are five. I did not know this per se, but. There are five Senate districts in the state, state Senate districts that are a minority, majority, a majority of Hispanics. And mm-hmm. this is one of them. The other one being Lawrence and mm-hmm. the other ones, you know, in, in Central Mass. But I wanted to, to, to mention something that didn't make it to my column, but which is also part of this dynamic in East Boston, you know, old immigrant versus new immigrant. Mm-hmm. So the state representative seat... Uh, is held by Adrian Madaro, right? He's a very young guy, obviously, again, with Italian roots. Um, the seat was vacated by Carlo Bastille, who went on to work for the Baker administration. Mm. Again, this is a seat that Petrocelli held almost 20 years ago. So there was a special election earlier this year. A Latino ran. And then uh, everyone was waiting to see whether Hernani was going to run because he was obviously somebody that would get, you know, that would garner or galvanize, you know, the community mm-hmm. around him. He supported Adrian Madaro. Oh, interesting. And because he was a mentor of Adrian um, in, during a high school fellowship that they both, you know, participated at. So this is a guy that won. And, and I would, you know, I, I would... I would venture a guess here that he won because he also had the support of the Latino community through Hernani. Right. right? right. So now and it's so, payback time. Well, hopefully, because he <laughs> told me that he saying. wouldn't run if Adrian runs. Oh, interesting. Hmm. He so he could run for Petrocelli. So Adrian is considering run for Petrocelli. Yeah. So again, it's it's all oh. of these musical chairs. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I, first of all, I just noted, I know. I hear Petrotelli. I've heard his name many, many years. I've never He's met young. him, but um, still, you know, you hear his name all the time when when yeah. you talk about city politics, not yeah. just East Boston politics, right. but city politics and state politics. And I think this is a good time to talk about how few uh, folks of um, Latino descent are in this state house currently. Absolutely, you know, yeah. just so people know. Right. Go ahead. Talk one, about <laughs> there is only one senator mm-hmm. of, of Latino descent, Senator Sonia Chang Diaz, mm-hmm. right. in the forty, mm-hmm. you know, among the forty senators, and among one hundred and sixty, there's only six state representatives, and we're talking about three point five percent in a yeah. state that has eleven point right. something and Latinos. Then in, and then in Boston, it's it, in Boston is twenty twenty percent, right. right. and we have no elected official from Boston. And so, which is, again, another column because it's also fascinating. Yeah, this is very um, fascinating. So, anyway. So, how, what, what impact, um, Julio, do you think all of this has or maybe doesn't have uh, when you think about the victory in Revere on the city council? I, going from zero to five. It's oh, that's Chelsea. Chelsea. Chelsea, sorry. No, yes, I, yes. I think that's, mm. that, you know, this is how it all starts, right? We have to look at the pattern of... Boston and Massachusetts and how political power started. And it always starts at the local level in Chelsea, you know, to have to have such a dramatic 
shift, and especially like Marcela says, all young. Mm. You know, they're and all young, which always signifies to me that not might not be as tainted. <laughs> you know, there is not a, only that, but they have a greater understanding of how politics is. Right. You know, they, they there's this great example, great story of this Chelsea city councilor. Um, not citywide, but it's a district council. It was one of the people that got elected, uh, Judith Garcia, 22-year-old girl, right. mm-hmm. born and raised in Chelsea, with a great, great um, personal story. She was raised by um, a single mother, this you know, immigrant worker. She still works in the same factory, you know, that she's worked. Right. She's the oldest, I, I think, worker in that factory. But anyway, has a great, great story, and she won knocking doors. Right, and that's knocking a- doors, and she got people that had right. never voted. Out that voted for her, and nobody expected that. No, nobody saw that coming. There was a coalition of Latino mm-hmm. um, candidates in Chelsea um, that were supporting her opponent, and she oh, still really? won. Yeah, that is but very. Interesting. But I think it, it's just a, a general mm-hmm. in, trend and indication of of the quote unquote you know Latino political power. And right. and one of the things that we do at Latino USA, we've been doing. Um, with Maria Hinojosa and the team is actually looking at these type of stories. So we actually did a story about a city running for a city council in Pasco, Washington, and the, and, and the young woman was, 19, I believe she was 19, 20 years old, and she, she decided to run because for the very same reason that Latinos weren't represented mm-hmm. in, and, you know, and that's a very, like, that's like 55% like Latino, and there was never anyone who was elected. So these sto- these type of stories are going to become more yeah. and more common, not only in Massachusetts, New England, all over the country. And what you're seeing, and 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 when you hear young, it it really is like younger, like second generation, first mm-hmm. generation mm-hmm. Latinos who are like, we want to be involved in the political process, and I kind of believe in the system. So the best way to do it is to run. What what doesn't surprise me, um. And is the fact that if Marcela Garcia wasn't on the Boston Globe, we wouldn't be hearing these stories. <laughs> you know, that's another that's another issue here, because what's <laughs> happened is, you know, by by this starting to increase, there is going to be political tension. There's yeah. going to be, you know, challenges to the status quo. And when we talk about places like Boston or, or surrounding areas around Boston in sort of the metropolitan area and the suburban area, like. There has been entrenchment. So here mm-hmm. we go. Like now what's going to happen? It's like this is this is going to be the first political challenge of the next class of immigrants. And, you know, the last hundred years, the immigrants that were, here, you know, the Irish and the Italians right. and everyone's like now they have the power. Now this new wave is coming. What's going to happen? And obviously the statehouse is, is not reflective of, of, of the Commonwealth. And that's going to create some interesting dynamics. Well, and we, we can see that city councils weren't either until very recently exactly. in, in right. Chelsea. So, I mean, that's just an amazing thing. Very uh, powerful. I'm talking with Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe and Julio Ricardo Varela of NPR's Latino USA and Latino Rebels. Um, I, because I'm spending a lot of time on this because, as you talked about, um, Julio, it starts at the local level. And how many times have the three of us been talking about the sleeping giant on mm-hmm. the national level? Yeah. The sleeping giant being referring to the Latino voting power. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen it exercised here in a pretty political state already on mm-hmm. local levels. And so there will be a lot of attention coming 
uh, from the outside for even these local races and watching this to see what happens. So I was very interested in this piece that you pointed out, um, Julio, about the poll taken by Maris. Now, people may recall this was a Telemundo Maris MSNBC poll. And the top of the poll was what got a lot of attention, that Donald Trump was again on top and, you know, continued to be on top. And this, by the way, was a poll taken before he said his latest comments about uh, keeping Muslims out of the country. So he just kept rising and people kept saying, wow, how can this be? You know, he's saying all this stuff and yet he keeps going up by a significant amount. Buried in that poll, and it was buried because I had not heard this, <laughs> um, was, I think, an, an upset of tri- what we consider conventional wisdom, which is if one of these white candidates, whichever one of them on either side, gets the presidential nod and he or she, because it could be a she, appoints a Latino vice president, they're in. It's over. That's done. That's, that's the, the conventional, winning. That's, that's the conventional wisdom. wisdom. And this is not what the poll says. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, you know, this is what I do at Latino USA. And I actually wrote the piece and the headline was like having Latino VP candidate doesn't matter. And it basically gets to the MSNBC Telemundo Maris poll, which you're right, Callie. If the, the top line was Hillary Clinton will beat every <laughs> GOP candidate with a strong Latino majority, you know. And so that's what everyone in the political press goes after. But then you start looking at, you know, question 13 and question 14 <laughs> and you actually read the results of the poll. And here's here's what the poll question 13 states. And I'm just going to read it because it says, are you more likely to or less likely to vote for a candidate for president who chooses a vice president who is Latino or who is Latino or of Hispanic background? If it would make a difference in your vote either way, please say so. So according to the poll, 8% of all registered voters said more likely. So that's 92% of registered voters say it really doesn't matter. (laughs) But what really surprised me was 23% of likely uh, Latino registered voters said it was more likely. So that's like, you know, that's 77% who say it doesn't matter. And you think about the fact that you know, it's hard least, to believe. It, let, let's you know. <laughs> let's look at the Democrats with Hillary Clinton, and there is talk about you know Secretary of Housing Castro, and Urban Deve- right. Development, former um, San Antonio impressive. Mayor Julian Castro, mm-hmm. as sort of you know would would make sense for for someone like Clinton. But according to, and this is a Telemundo MSNBC Maris poll. This is not some crazy wacky poll. It really wouldn't make a difference, even with Latinos. Now on the Republican side, you know, no one asked the the one question that wasn't asked was. If if the Republican presidential candidate mm-hmm. were Latino, like like Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. So that wasn't asked. But let's say they are not the candidates. And I actually have already gone on record several times to think that Marco Rubio is is the presidential. Mm. Uh, he's going to be the Republican really? candidate. So that's really? a different. Yeah, thing. I can um, attest to that. Right. <laughs> but okay. but. But let's say they're not, and then you're starting to pick someone like a Brian Sandoval, who is sort of uh, – he's the governor mm-hmm. of Nevada, or mm-hmm. Susana Martinez, who's the governor of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Even that would mean that it wouldn't matter. So this whole, like, notion of identity politics and, like, the Latino sleeping giant, like, this type of poll, like, no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And and that, and that's the part where I was like – I thought it was in. I was actually pleasantly like not. Ple- I was surprised. I'm shocked, by the way. And I have to say, I just I can't believe that a pride factor 
was that was asked. Like if you drill down, mm, and I yeah. just and maybe it's because I just can't give up the conventional wisdom because it, I keep thinking that's right. Just, well, the thing about mm. identity politics is that obviously it's always very complicated to write about. But when you talk about Latinos, it's even more complicated because you don't have just one identity. That's right. You don't have, you know, people assume I mean, that it's Latino have, like, identity. Have, like, yes, you have. <laughs> exactly. It's right. very, very, very sweet generous. I mean, it's you have Dominicans, you have Puerto Ricans, you have Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, you have, Cubans. you know, Cubans, mm-hmm. you have Venezuelans, you have mm-hmm. Colombians, you have Central Americans. I mean, we just listed seven yes. right there. So... You know, then so when you talk to, when you talk about generalizing these type of issues, and then you get responses like this, like you say, you want to drill down. I mean, was did, did people even know what what they're ta- you know what what potential you know vice president candidates they were talking about? Yeah, you know, because there would be a difference in having because it doesn't matter who absolutely. Like if you have like a, a Mexican American Democrat, that's kind of a rock star. Right. Like Julian Castro, Julian Castro is yes, exactly. Absolutely. I don't see anybody like voting if they were asked you know would would the presence of of Julian Castro in, in a ticket Good make point. a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. I got to believe you, that. If you if yeah. you ask Mexican Americans, right? Yes. Maybe Puerto Ricans in the East Coast, not so much. Who knows? I'm just right. saying. He's, he's, he's a social media rock star. I know. Well, yes, I love even him. Even beyond I love him. social media, I mean, the, the the man is just, I've, I've heard him in small settings and he's large. Amazing. He is really impressive. Yeah, you know, talk we, about charisma. Yeah, we, we talked. Um, <laughs> yeah. We actually interviewed him. Maria interviewed him a couple of uh, couple months ago in Orlando uh, for Latino USA. And, we're, and part of our Latino vote series in next year is actually going to, we're going to actually have him on. But but we asked him straight up about like, you know, you could be the lat, you know, the the vice presidential, and the he first, said, and, he said, and, oh, well, and he kind of was like, oh well, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but the thing about his story, if if you don't know about Julian Castro's story, his mom yeah. is a Chicana well, they're activist for one thing. They're twins, but his yeah. mom was a Chicana <laughs> activist. The mother is amazing. And Maria interviewed the mother like two or three years ago, and I was actually when she did the interview. It's one of those stories when you're like, so Maria's like talking to Julian Maria Hinojosa. And she she goes straight for you know when you want to get to the heart of a Latino guy like start talking about your With mother, the mother. Right. and like you could just tell like he, he was just right. kind of like oh mommy like but but he is and by the way that's Maria Hinojosa Mina, of Latino USA yeah I keep yes. the, but yeah. um but it was really interesting but the other thing I want to say about mm-hmm. this poll Callie because everyone again went with the top line about Hillary right. Clinton and everything. All her numbers, I mean, she has very strong, like, let me right. let me put this in context. She has very strong, like, numbers with Latino voters, according to the poll. But all her numbers decreased in this latest poll amongst Latino voters, except for Jeb Bush. Hmm. So so when if you, she's going head to head, if she's going, yes, head, exactly. Yes. Thank you. If, he, if she's going head to head with these GOP candidates. And I just want to raise a couple of points that like someone like Marco Rubio. Um, if it went head to head amongst Latinos, it would be 57 percent for Clinton, 38 percent for Rubio. And even Donald Trump, even Donald <laughs> Trump um, in September, he was losing 69 to 22 uh, to Clinton and he, he bumped it up to 27 percent and Clinton remained at 69 percent. So there wasn't, you know, one of the things of this, if people remember the 2012 election, the elusive, you know, Obama got 72 percent of the Latino vote. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton has yet to sort of get there. And actually, her numbers continue to just creep down just a little bit in every little poll amongst Latinos, at least head to head with the GOP. And that's actually an observation that I just raised because 
when I talk when I don't assume and when I talk to Latino voters and when we do these when we're Mm -hmm. doing these these shows for Latino USA, it's almost like Clinton is this establishment candidate who are who's who is not exciting Latino voters as much as, let's say, Obama did in 2008, Well, let me stop you right there, Julio, because I recall, I have to keep quoting back Marcella Garcia sitting right here in front of me. She told me after 2012 election that Latinos voted <laughs> by holding their noses yes, for right. Obama, that it was not an enthusiastic vote. There was a lot of room in there. Um, so there, it seems to me, Marcella, there's also a lot of room in there the other way then if Julian is on the ticket with, with uh, Hillary. But... On the Republican side, I think it's very interesting that people have a choice between, if you're just looking at Latinos now, Cruz and Rubio. And this is why we hear Cruz attacking Rubio recently, because Cruz is number three now, and he's going after Rubio with everything he's got to try to knock him out. And these are two very different... Men yep. Um, yep. on the to- on many topics that people might assume they have similar feelings, right? Yeah. And we're talking about you know Cuban politics in yes. Florida. I mean, yes. this these two men are representative of that. Well, semi representative of that. But to your earlier point about 2012, um, I, I mean, this is why it's so important for Democrats that the Supreme Court hears the challenge to the mm-hmm. executive orders of you know President mm-hmm. Obama on immigration, because that, th- that is going to have the biggest impact in the race, in my opinion more than the abortion case or all the other cases that the Supreme Court are, you know, is going to rule on next summer. If the Supreme Court upheld, upholds the, um, you know, the injunction on the, that's going to have a huge impact yes. on the Latino vote. And yes, people are not, and, and everything points to the fact that it's going to happen, that the Supreme Court is going to hear it and it's going to rule next summer. So it's it's just going to get a lot more interesting because Ruby has already said that he's going to roll back the executive orders, and so that you know all this that we're talking about, it, it, I think it's going to change when when that ruling comes. Um, and who knows? And when who we knows know who's who going to be in the race? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we'll know then at yeah. that point. Mm-hmm. Well. All right. Well, that's much to be discussed in the future. Can't wait to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me go to a couple of school questions, uh, school stories, rather. One is about Madison Park High School. Madison oh, Park is yeah. the state's uh, vocation, technical vocational high school, that, and it's the only one. There are others in within the state that are, are run privately or... But this is the one that's for the state that's open for everybody. It's We know the history. We've talked about it a lot here on this show of it's just trying to survive. And mm-hmm. it's in the last couple of years certainly have been through a lot of changes of leadership, blah, blah, blah. When the new uh, superintendent, school superintendent came in, he said this is a priority. Mayor Walsh has said it's a priority. We're going to do it. Well, now the state has designated it as underperforming. Yeah. Which actually, um, just so people understand, is a good and a bad designation. On the one hand, you don't want to be designated underperforming because it says the school then is therefore not achieving what it needs to for sure. for the students there. The MCAS scores are too MCAS scores are too low. They're not getting um, all of the education they need, and obviously has been said by others, they're not even getting the level of uh, technical vocational experience um, that they need to get in that school. However, by declaring it underperforming, now uh, there can be some changes made at the school, which ostensibly may have another chance for the well, school. I don't know. It's a hard um, way to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's still one step, one level away from receivership. Yes. Level five is receivership. And, and of course, level four is not where you want to be as a school because that means and that's that where they are now. That's where they clear. are now. They yeah. were level three for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now they're level four. They're the, the only one school that was 
um, th- this time around that was designated as level four in the states. I think there are 15. The case of Madison Park is puzzling. It, it is, per- it, you know, it's, it defies logic and explain. Yeah. Like I have been looking at this school for since August, and it, it you know, I, I just sit. It's just it, it boggles the mind. You know, I don't doubt that Mayor Walsh and Superintendent Tommy Chang have the best intentions, but I don't think they're going in the right direction. They want to use this school as a launching pad for the new redesign, high school redesign effort, which I think is very, very misguided. Now, the school has a new uh, headmaster, Mm -hmm. a new executive director. Again, I don't doubt that they have the best intentions, but the school has, you know, this intractable problems. It's, It's a culture. It's institutionalized. So... You know, one always wonders, is it better to shut it down? Is it better for it to to operate independently of the district? Like all the other uh, vocational schools uh, operate in the state very successfully. Worcester, you know, who President Obama has allowed it, you know, he went there. Hmm. The success that Worcester has achieved is incredible. They operate in a very... Um, hybrid type of way in a way, you know, they are part of the district, but they have their own autonomies, right, mm-hmm. to do whatever they want in terms of curriculum, in terms of hiring teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something like that needs needs to happen to Madison Park. Years ago, under Menino, Menino tried to put it, you know, to to right. to um, have it run as an independent regional vocational high school and all hell you know, broke loose because people wanted to claim it for Boston. Right. And mm-hmm. which is all good and fine. And it will remain in Boston. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, why, why can it run independently and, and have, um, I, I just, I mean, it's, it's, I think well, it's I think, the best thing that, that should happen to the school. Either it closes or either it's, you know, gets taken away from the district. Well, I hope it doesn't close because we are at mm. a, t- we are at well, a when I say time. When yeah. I say close, yeah. I say close it and open it. It takes some time mm. and to really work, but start from scratch. I think the people that supported fear that if it closes, that's then that it. Would happen. That will yeah. never, it I, will never happen. And I, I, I just I don't wanna, think that's necessarily true, but yeah, it may not be. But you know, you look around Boston and you see how that some of that stuff works. So right. you just don't know. This is a new guy, Tommy Chang, is now on his watch. Um, he came in saying this has to be fixed. By the but way, this is what's been happening. Sorry, I, I just want to make sure that people understand what it means for them now to have this underperforming designation. They can get around the teacher union contract right. and uh, lengthen school days, fire teachers, which is a fear from everybody, and make some other changes. And also, um, that was the point I was going. Like, yeah, right. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's, and also, just remember, underperforming schools. You know, you're 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 using standardized. Test scores and dropout rates. And, graduation rates. And, too. Graduation, graduation rates. But, but here's the problem with education reporting in general, I think. Um, we, we, treat, we treat schools as these, like, monolithic numbers as opposed to trying to understand what, what the students are going through. Like, wh- wh- what I think the city can do, you know, and Superintendent Chang, this is an opportunity, I, I, I agree, is to really start communicating like i mean because the school is underperforming doesn't mean that everyone in the school is underperforming no and i think that will be and i think that needs to be part of of trying to educate the community and say you know we've been troubled um yes we've had problems um you know it's it's based on standardized testing graduation rates and dropout rates um you know standardized testing should not determine whether a school is is good or not and i think what what 
well, some would disagree with you. Right. Yes. Well, yeah, no. but, and we're in the middle of a big standardized yeah, but, testing. But also, we're, we're in a test. You know, we yeah. over-test our kids, and I've been in education for 20 years Yeah, but that's, this. Another, I, that's a different issue yeah, that Madison Park I, is facing. I, I mean, understand, but I also think it's a quick knee-jerk reaction to be like, oh, you have bad test scores, it's a bad Have school. you been to Madison Park? I have. All right, it so is, here's the I thing. I mean, it, it's mind-boggling. This yeah. would have never happened in the Newton or Wells. Like, no. This Thank has you. been going on for so long. Yeah, no, I understand. These kids deserve better, all of them, not the ones that are doing well. Not the one. These kids go there because they don't have any other option. And, and you know what? They're black and brown. To, they're looking forward to right. uh, learning a technology and, by a the career. way, and a career. We got a whole state right. full of employers waiting to give it's, them livable wages yeah, right. if it's they know these skills. Yeah. So this cannot go down for many, many reasons. Right. Uh, and they've got to figure it out. And it seems to me this is a question of leadership. And somehow there's yeah, a disconnect the, with. Yeah. Uh, I, but but listen, under the underperforming, because you got to now. Right. That's the rules. Uh, I fear for people who've been doing the job and, you know, and now but at Cali, risk for losing their work. Losing yeah, their I do. Job. They already yeah. had that yeah. uh, that choice before. They had an innovation status, which means which didn't go anywhere for but three years. This is years. one step before receivership, as we've said. So I this know. is more dire than ever. I know. I know we may have been here before, but I'm going to assume we have a new superintendent. This is more dire than it's ever been new before. Uh, there's a new headmaster. Right. A lot well, of people feel... how much time will you sp- give them? Uh, I'd like to see what's happening in a year. Yeah. I, I mean, I think... I, I, Tommy Chang just got here. I'm going yeah, to... I'm, 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 I'm not faulting... Yeah. The, I'm not putting all the honors And I'm basing this on looking around and seeing severely underperforming schools that have just come yeah, out into the exactly. light recently exactly. because they had a moment to figure it out. So turn, yeah, turn I, around, take time. To, you yes. need to, yeah. I, like I said, I think this is an opportunity for the city of Boston for Superintendent Chang to bring, sort. you know, he comes from LAUSD. He worked with underperforming schools. That This is part of his, this is his sweet spot. You know, this this yeah, is the supposed yeah. sweet spot. Right. And if you go to LAUSD, I mean, there's so oh, many other, goodness. you know, that, yeah. that yeah. you know, makes Boston look like, like, you know, Boston Small doesn't stuff. have problems. Yeah, so, yeah. so this is an opportunity for the superintendent to be like, I practice what I preach. And I actually think that, you know, you got to understand what the problems, you know, the systematic problems have been before you can really fix them. And there's a history of these schools right. moving, these urban high schools moving in the right direction. So I do have hope. I do have hope for well, this. Well, I, I'm going to see. I, I, I want to see what the next steps yeah. will be, the immediate next steps. But everybody's got an eye on it. So they are operating in the spotlight. There is no hiding yeah, place. Yeah, and, and they, they've one. already said what they yeah. want to do. Yeah. They want to um, use it as a launching pad to, for high school redesign. And, yeah, and I again, think that's work I, I think that's the wrong, yeah. you know, yes, we want to give Tommy a, Chang the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But Well, we'll see what happens because the families... The parents are very involved, and as we know, there's a community group that's very involved. So this is not anything can, that can happen quietly. I'll be interested to see in a couple months to see what's happening. Let me move to a study that was done by the Pioneer Institute. I should say right up front, the Pioneer Institute has, with other studies, made it clear that they are in support of lifting the charter school cap. So mm. everybody knows you know, what cards they have on the table. But this is a very interesting story about uh, charter public schools Boosting Achievement for English Language Learners. Now, we have talked, certainly the three of us, and I've talked in other roundtables here uh, at Under the Radar, about the struggle and the ridiculousness behind and getting further behind systems in place to help English language Mm -hmm. learners in schools. So this is 
some outstanding news yeah, uh, no, this, in this way. And I'm not a charter school supporter, I should right. say. Uh, uh, well, front. This, this study, what it did is a white paper. It looked at three, you know, the experience of three charter schools. So it's not a general, you know, mm. they didn't look across the system. They just did, you know, three schools and they decided to dive in and look at what best practices they were doing in order to get these results with ELLs. And so... You know, it's um, it's a combination of different things, what they found, you know, longer school days, um, parent involvement, it's key. Um, because, they, you know, in terms of ELL um, instruction, they have the same restrictions that all their BPS, meaning that they have to do sheltered English immersion. Um, right. So... And these are public schools, remember. These we are want public to remind, schools, Remember, sure. they're charter schools, but they're public. I thought, to your point, that I, this was the most important takeaway for me out of their study. The recruiting teachers with a growth mindset yep. and familiarity with students' backgrounds, providing differentiated and targeted training opportunities. Now, to me... That I am not certain is happening in these other instances when we have talked right. about why the English language learner program seems to be languishing in so many public schools. But the thing That's is, a great point. Yeah. here's yeah. the thing. But, and again, I probably know too much about mm-hmm. this subject because I actually ran a department that focused on this in my previous life. Um, all these best practices that are being talked about, they've been going on for, for, for decades, right? So so places, in like, in Cal- places. In places like California, yeah. mm-hmm. Texas— um, Florida, you know, you look at, you know, a lot of this thinking. So what, so what's happened is that as anything in curriculum, when you start seeing these practices move to other places, they become discovered as being like, oh, look, we're doing really great things. When in fact, there's nothing here that hasn't been, that the research or, or, or the curriculum has well, said. Know, it. it hadn't been done. That's what but I, the but, bottom line but is, but I've also, been done. Exactly. 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 I've been, I've been, exactly. But, Exactly. Hear me, I mean, out. Hear me oh, out for okay. a second, guys. Hear me out. <laughs> you know, I would when I was doing that my my previous life um, working on bilingual ELL curriculum in the '90s, and I would go into these districts in Massachusetts, and I would see. You know, I I knew the research, and I knew what made what would constitute a best practice, and it wasn't being done at all. It wasn't being. It, you know, it just wasn't being done. So what it has to happen is it's it's a lot of you know it's exactly what they're saying here. It's like you know you need to educate the community. You need to to understand that this is important, that we need to get, you know, this is an opportunity for English language learners to achieve something that will be successful for them. That growth mentality of we like, need to get the teachers in there that I was going to say, that, how do you, but, how yeah, do you yeah, hire yeah, those teachers yes. for BPS? That's exactly right. And that's how where we come it's down mind, it's to. The, it's the mind, it, but you're right. I, it's, exactly. a growth, it's a growth mindset. It's, it's, it's saying that, you and know. And here we are to me, right. back to the political juncture of, right. of, of the argument about charter, charter schools, versus, yeah. expansion versus <laughs> right. a, other public schools. Because they don't have the leeway, right. you know, to do the kind of hiring that they mm-hmm. should be doing. Exactly. That is exactly. exactly like what's happening in these charter schools, which is now affording a measurable difference in achievement. But the the best way to do it, it has to come from, I mean, you're right. People have to speak out and people have to talk about these results and say, you know what, this whole notion that these young, you know, English language learners don't want to learn English or are not going to succeed in English is a crock. Right. It's a crock. And, and people need to start saying that. And so it, let me ask this political yeah. question because we're at it is a political I was, I was just push now that, yeah. to expand the charter yeah. school cap. So is there some way 
well, now you can look at these schools and say they're doing this, but is there some way in the expansion, which has been right. my concern all along, when you expand, now what happens? Right. You're supposed right. to be doing all this stuff, and suddenly right. now we're not doing it. Is there a way for the people who are supporting the expansion to say, we expect what you're doing now to continue to be doing it in some measurable way? Well, so this would be people, part of it. What about you know? the people that are anti-charters? And I'm going to refer here to the union. Instead of fighting the union, the, the uh, charter expansion, why don't you spend more time looking at these issues, at your teachers, and why are they not performing well with ELLs? Well, that's a good question, too. Well, there's so a lot, there, of, there's a lot of points there. And this is all going to be on the but table But it's all cultural, it's linguistic. I mean, that. that's been a ongoing issue when the fact is like these kids are seen as quote-unquote different and they're not seen as learners. This is why data means something. This is huge. I mean, I really think, I'm really glad we are talking about this, Callie, and and this, because this is actually huge information that can inform people about like the most important thing that we can give is, is education. And I also am someone who, you know, both my kids are in public schools. I mean, it's, it's not Boston, but I do believe in the public school system mm-hmm. as the greatest, like, ideal for democracy in the society. And I if, I get, if I get all lofty about it, then, you know, that's my that's my that's that's who I am. But but I do think it's such a quick way to be like, oh, charter schools have done it better. So let's go that way as opposed to no, these practices have been in are being used all over the country. We just haven't done a good job as a commonwealth or a, a, as a district to actually engage this more. Well, they're using it. The Pioneer Institute survey people are saying this is evidence that they that charter An schools are it, not yeah. cherry picking. They take all and they figure out how to deal with all. That's a whole other whole yeah, other we're show. Not there. We're, we're not, not going, going there. there. But I just want to make sure that that's included <laughs> as a part of the, the coming forth with this survey. Um, listen, I have way more I'd love to talk to you all about, but of course my time is done here. So I get, uh, I want 30 seconds from each of you on Sophia, Sophia Regar- Regaro's okay, wedding. Can, can, I, have, can <laughs> yes. I have the floor, please? Yes, go ahead. Can I have the floor? Go ahead. I, I was obsessed say. with that wedding. I spent, I was actually in the hospital in Mexico looking at Instagram pictures like a loser of Sophia Vergara's wedding because it was perfect. Did you see the flowers fabulous. on the church? Yeah. I was like, oh my God. The dresses. The cake. The dresses. And I have she's a question. I, yes, the dress I didn't really like that much. Oh, I like the dress. I mean, I didn't she's think it was she's so pretty. I know. She had are we, are oh my done? goodness! No, no, and then you see yes. the videos we're, we're of people. We're almost done. Yeah. Did you see the videos of I her did. dancing with people? I did see that. Oh my god! And I'm saying this in this context because this is just as important. She is one of the most powerful women yeah. economically in Hollywood. She's number fifty-seven. How much does it make? On the I don't know. On, she's but she's number seven. She's number fifty-seven on the Forbes most powerful women in. Hollywood, and she just got her Hollywood walk of uh, that's uh, right, the walk star. of a Hollywood star Amazing. thing. And so you know, hey, and how old is she? And she looks she's like forty 20. something. <laughs> yeah, she looks she's fabulous, and she's got all she's got her own production company. She's doing all this other stuff. Hey, I say bravo, and I like the dress. Marcella Garcia is a bilingual journalist and an editorial writer for the Boston Globe, editorial and op-ed pages, and Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital media director for NPR's Latino USA and founder of Latino Rebels website. Up next, almanacs have been printed in Cambridge, Massachusetts since 1639. We're talking to an editor of the 2016 edition about the book's utility in an age of weather apps and the internet. This is Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. 
And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. The holiday season is in full swing. Days are getting shorter. Coats are getting longer. And winter is, as they say, coming. Since 1792, people have turned to the Old Farmer's Almanac for weather predictions, tips, tricks, tables, and charts. Here to discuss the projections for this winter is Janice Stillman, Old Farmer's Almanac editor. She is only the 13th editor and the first woman ever to hold the post. She joins us from New Hampshire, where the secret prediction formula is kept literally in a locked black box. Welcome, Janice. It's great to be with you. Oh, I'm just delighted to speak to you. So let's just get this out of the way right away. What's in that black box? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they won't let me see it. (laughs) We actually have a video up on the website, almanac.com, and um, I try my darndest with every tool known to man to get it open, and um, it it doesn't happen. (laughs) Okay, so I guess we'll just have to get out of you how then, outside of the black box, what you can share with us about how you all come up with a, a good estimate of what's going to happen. Well, I'm only interested in the winter season. And by the way, your predictions are 18 months ahead. So what do you use um, to come to some conclusions about what we can expect? Well, the distinction between the forecast by everybody else pretty much and the Old Farmer's Almanac is the use of sunspots and the interest in the activity on the sun. That's called solar science. And the sunspots occur in cycles of 11 years on average. And historically, when there's a a, a lot of activity on the sun, we have warm conditions on Earth. And when there is less activity on the sun, it tends to be cooler. And uh, then we use climatology, which means we look back in time to see, indeed, when those cycles occurred and what were the conditions on Earth that correspond. And then we use meteorology, which is the study of the atmosphere, including the ocean temperatures. We hear a lot about that these days, the jet stream, the land temperatures, and a variety of other things. Well, it sounds a bit like what weathercasters, the ones we see on the Weather Channel, say they do. But Uh, I know uh, there's uh, a difference. uh, 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 Okay, (laughs) yes, okay. Make it clear. (laughs) Well, it really is the solar activity and the uh, sunspots that make the difference. You know, there are meteorologists around the country, and God bless them, they do a swell job, and and, uh, they tend to do long-term, long, God bless them, they do a swell job, and they tend to do short-term forecasts, you know, five to seven days, maybe a couple of weeks. But as you pointed out, we make our forecasts early in the prior year, the cover year, so um, early in January, February, and March, our meteorologist is creating the forecast. So from a long-term basis, and again, looking um, well forward into the cyclical and historically um, uh, indicative conditions that the sunspots uh, uh, produce. That's the distinction in the Old Farmer's Almanac. You know, we had a, an issue, uh, the 2009 issue, we had a story that covered the sunspots essentially over the past 100 years, and you can see clearly the trends between several decades of warm, several decades of cold, several decades of warm and cold, and it's fascinating. Now, with all of that said, whether it's the prediction for 2016 or the years to come, we have said that uh, and acknowledged, and it's it's recognized, that we're currently in solar cycle 24, which is, is the lowest cycle in more than 100 years. Now, that could indicate colder than normal temperatures to come. However, we're also dealing, as everybody knows, with a greater than normal percentage of greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that could offset what would 
historically otherwise indicate cooler than normal temperatures for years and even decades. Yeah, so let's pick up on that. Climate change really does impact um, how you do your work and what you can, the ways in which you can look ahead, if you will. It's actually more the opposite because we believe that the energy and light and heat of the sun influences the climate and it's not the other way around. Okay. Um, And so when people say climate change has thrown off everything we generally know to to be true about regions, so it's, for example, right now in uh, Boston, it's quite warm. I love it, but, you know, a number of New Englanders will say this is very unseasonable. Right. And the climate is always changing. So we have to keep that in mind, too. And, you know, as I pointed out over the past hundred years, and in fact, over several hundred years, you know, if you look back and study the solar science, you can see these swings of colder than normal, warmer than normal, colder than normal, et cetera. And it just, it, there's a pattern established. And I'm not a solar scientist. I can't break it down. But I know there are several uh, several cycle periods, not just the 11 years on average of the sunspots, but up to even 400-year cycles that, that uh, solar scientists study. However, you know, if the sun provides the heat and that warms the water, and then we're going to see things like El Nino ultimately, and we're also going to see warm water in the Atlantic, and you're going to see the the flows of water around the world uh, between ice melts that that occur from the sun and then bring cold water into the ocean that change the water flow. And it's the water temperature often in the oceans that dictates our our weather. It somewhat controls the jet stream, which is, you know, bringing us these um, above normal temperatures now. And, you know, we're, we haven't even started winter as far as the local circumstances are concerned. Of course, that's going to be about 12 minutes before midnight on December 21st, if anybody wants to get up and see it in. But, uh, <laughs> you know, th- there are so many things that influence the weather and ultimately the climate. And again, going full circle here, climate is always changing. Well, that uh, brings me to what you have predicted so far for um, this winter coming up for our area, which is bad news. Big bad news, <laughs> is what, if I may say. Um, you're predicting cold, snowy winter, maybe even worse than last year, which was pretty bad up here, as, as if you recall. Um, are you sticking with that? Does it look like that's what's happening? Well, it, it, we are sticking with it, yes. We produce our forecasts and don't change them, yes. Um, the El Nino has certainly come on stronger than we expected and, and a little bit sooner than we, than we expected. So, sure, we're enjoying milder than normal temperatures. And, you know, let's face it, some people love this and some people would much rather see a lot of snow and a white Christmas. We did forecast that for just about all across the country. Um, but, again, winter is barely upon us. And rather like last year, we had mild temperatures this time of the year. And then, you know, come into late January and February, as you pointed out, we'll never forget it. We're not predicting above normal temperatures. We're not predicting above normal snow like we did last year. But certainly the cold will come and there should be snow. We need snow. Snow is good no, we don't. for the soil. It's good for- <laughs> <laughs> we don't need it. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but it it does it does help plants to to thrive. It, you know, it uh, let's face it, some bu- bugs and pests and insects don't survive a severe cold. And you know, there's a lot to and folks make money plowing snow. I mean, there's there's a lot to be enjoyed. Ski companies, you know, this it's we we say at the old farmers almanac. We certainly hope everybody gets the weather they want. You know, <laughs> sooner or later. So. Well, I'd like to get the weather I want, and it's not that I can tell you. Um, let's talk about the endurance of the old farmers 
almanac because you know I have the the book in my hand and it looks as I've always recalled it looks kind of old-fashioned as a matter of fact and um and it also has this famous hole up in the corner which I'm going to ask you to talk about in just a second but there seems to be a comfort level from your fans uh, with this look that this seems to that it would be maybe funny if it had kind of a sleek black cover with one slash farmers or something, you know, very modern looking. Do you agree? Well, well, perhaps. But, you know, there's something about the consistency of the cover, which has actually been the same since about 1852. It's the yellow background. If you look closely, you'll see it's uh, fine illustrations of the seasons and the events on the farm in the seasons from the spring where they're hoeing and seeding to the summer where you see the hay being collected. Down in the bottom uh, left, you see the autumn with the leaves changing and the and the harvest underway, and then the winter with the cows closer to the barn. It's it's small and defined art, art, yes, but in the middle you see the big red number indicating the year 2016. On the right of that is Robert B. Thomas, the founder of the Old Farmer's Almanac. On the left is a depiction of Benjamin Franklin, who, of course, founded Poor Richard's Almanac and is considered to be the father of almanacs in this country as a result. And it's that package that really signals what the Old Farmer's Almanac is, and that is a calendar of the year, and that's depicted on the cover. It predicts really every something every single day. You've got the rise and set of the sun and moon and the length of day, so important in these, in these days. Um, all the other uh, astronomical events from the conjunctions, moon phases, so important in many traditional practices and habits in country life and farming and gardening. So it, it really depicts what the Old Farmer's Almanac is. And, of course, you've got the count in Roman numerals in the top center for, uh, in this case, 224 years. I'm speaking with Janice Stillman. She's the editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac, the first woman editor, and the 13th in a long line of editors of this uh, long-standing tradition that is the Old Farmer's Almanac. This is Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley. Um, the hole up in the top uh, corner. There's a for a moment you all removed the hole and then you got flack from from the readers. Tell me about that. Actually, um, not to my knowledge. I, I I don't believe we ever removed the hole, but we actually asked readers in the late 1990s in a survey. We're always doing surveys of the readers, but we asked, "What about the hole? It's costing us forty two thousand eight hundred and twenty seven dollars, <laughs> and of course produces about a million pounds of uh, uh, paper." Uh, just to cut it. And of course, you can only punch the holes in, in 10 or 12 of these copies at a time with the number of pages and even in the technology we have today. So when you're printing 3 million of these, it takes a while to punch the hole. So the bottom line was the readership said, no, never um, stop producing the hole. We use it. It's it's such a signature of the Old Farmer's Almanac. People hang the Old Farmer's Almanac in their kitchen, in their shed, in their barn, you know, in the bathroom, yes. I mean, wherever it's handy, but it's <laughs> such a, a special part of the Almanac. And, in fact, all the pages inside are designed in such a way that nothing will ever be – no no content – no illustration, no word certainly will be, ever be uh, punched out because of the hole. Well, that's a, it's a great look. Now, you are online as well. You know, we, we think about these days of uh, everybody being online, and you might think in a broader sense, hey, this is the old Farmer's Almanac. We've just described this sort of old-fashioned publication with the hole in it. But yet you're online as well. So how do you, how do you make it all happen 
being online, having the book, and in an age of weather casting and people getting 24-hour weather, why is it? What's the endurance of the of the almanac? Well, we are right there with them. Indeed, we are online. We're on just about everything right now, actually. You know, it all really stems from the idea uh, that the Old Farmer's Almanac is old but not old-fashioned and also useful with a pleasant degree of humor, and that distinguishes us from many other similar sources. I should point out, by the way, that farmer's almanacs are really as old as dirt. They've been around (laughs) forever. So long as people have been growing food and keeping farms and and maintaining animals, they've all looked for a little bit more advice and help and quick and easy methods. We bring all of that to the print edition, which is also available for virtually every e-reading device imaginable now, both on our website and through all the other sources that you buy those things. Our website, almanac.com, is uh, immediately responsive, fully mobile, and folks can get access to that as a website or, let's say, a mobile source. Um, what else? We have podcasts. I mean, we're, we're there with everything. We produce an Old Farmer's Almanac for Kids every two years. It's an undated edition. Uh, eight calendars every year for wall and desktop and box calendars and like that. So you respect um, the history, but you're here now. You're, you're in oh, this every space bit. Yes. Oh, yes, uh-huh. yes. We support all of the interests and enthusiasms of uh, folks who would be interested in the core Old Farmer's Almanac, the calendar, the farming, the gardening, the humor, the anniversary aspects, the recipes, because when people grow things, I want to know what to what to do with them. How can I enjoy this most? Hmm. And certainly, of course, yes, the weather and the astronomy, ever so important these days, because isn't it so interesting on a clear day when we can look up and we see all of those stars, occasionally Venus or with a little a tool like telescope or even binoculars sometimes, Mars or some other planet, and certainly the moon. The moon is so important to the best fishing days, best days to plant, the best days for so many things, quitting smoking, starting a diet, <laughs> cutting your hair. Um, you know, it goes, it goes on. The Old Farmer's Almanac is a true calendar of the heavens, and in that regard, really is a tool for everyday life, everyday use. And it celebrates the rhythm and glory of nature from sunrise to sunset, moonrise to moonset. And it really is just a, a, a touchstone to the natural world, to the life we live 24-7, yes, but in a way that's that's okay online if you want it, but is just around us all the time. So the final question, which is the important one, how accurate are you? So Maybe I can hope you're not accurate and I don't have to look forward to this snow and ice you're predicting for 2016. (laughs) Well, the weather forecasts are traditionally 80% accurate, and that's in temperature and precipitation deviations from the norm. Last winter, we were 96.3% accurate. Okay, everything else in the old farmer's almanac is 100% accurate. Remember, brush your teeth in your youth, or when you're old, you'll brush your tooth. (laughs) Okay, that's some old farmer's almanac humor for sure. Janice Stillman is the editor of the Old Farmer's Almanac. Fun fact, she is a Massachusetts native, and she edits the Old Farmer's Almanac from New Hampshire. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.